0: Amen. Well, we are continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians this morning, and we come, as Matt has said, to a parenthesis really in the middle of this book, which is interesting. It's a letter that Paul's writing to a group of people that he knows, that he loves. He spent two years of his life planting this church in the city of Ephesus, and then he had to leave in a hurry. Why? Because there was a riot in the city over him and his teachings, and there were people who wanted to kill him, which was pretty much the pattern for Paul. I mean, if you read through the book of Acts, this is what happens. I, Paul, go into a city. I plant a church in the city. Opposition arises. People now want to kill me. And everybody says, Paul, you need to leave. And so I flee for my life. I go to another city. I plant a church in that city. Opposition arises. People want to kill me. I need to flee for my life. I go to another city. You get the idea? I plant a church. They want to kill me. I flee for my life. You're like, good grief. What a life this guy had. What a life he had indeed. So he's writing to these people that he knows well, he planted the church, he had to flee for his life, he probably hasn't been there in years at this point, point. and he stops in the middle of the letter and he says, hey, um, I want to talk to you about something I'm concerned about. So I am concerned because I have heard from other people who have been there with you that you're concerned about me, and so I'm concerned that you're concerned about me. And what they're concerned about is they've heard about all of his suffering, And the sufferings of the Apostle Paul are absolutely legendary, guys. He is one of those just all-time legendary sufferers in life. In another letter to another church that he planted and, you know, had to take off from, he writes this in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he says, "'Are they?' You're like, "'Who's the they?' Well, in that church in Corinth, there arose this group of people who said, you know what, you should pay attention to us and our gospel as opposed to Paul and his gospel, and we are greater and better servants than Jesus. And Paul's like, oh, good grief, I have to deal with this. And from a distance. He's like, all right, well, are they servants of Christ? He says, I'm a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a madman. I cannot believe I have even been drawn into this comparison game conversation. But since I'm in it, since that's what it's going to take, let's talk about it. He says, I'm a better servant. And here's how you know, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, plural, with countless beatings. Like at what number do you quit counting? Like, I've been beaten so many times now, I used to remember, and it was like six, but you know, I don't know, somewhere around 15 or so, it's just like, I don't know, did I get beaten there? I can't remember now, like, countless, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. What is that all about? I mean, why do they stop at 39? Because these guys who would take a cat of nine tails that had these little pieces of glass and... and, and, little pieces of metal embedded in it so that when they whipped you, it stuck into your flesh, and then they yanked it off. Get the idea? They were professional executioners. These guys were precise. They knew what would kill a man. So they stopped at 39. Paul's like, yeah, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. That was fun. Once I was stoned and left for dead, if you know the story, like everybody's like, he's dead and took off and he was not dead as it turned out. Three times I was shipwrecked. Like, when do you stop taking a boat? You know, like, I mean, really, I've been shipwrecked three times. I'm going on the train, guys. I'll meet you. You know, three times. Talk about a head scratcher. I mean... One night, he says, a night and a day, I was adrift at sea. What is he, like, floating on a log or something of planks from the boat?
1: What would that make you think? Like, Lord, what in the world? Who gets shipwrecked three times? On frequent journeys, no real one place to stop, no one place to stay,
0: Why? Because of danger. He lays it all out. He gives all these categories. And danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, people I entrusted my heart to and who turned out to be false. What is he saying? He's going, let me describe my life to you. Compare it to these guys who are saying they're better servants. Like I've been
1: in danger all the time, everywhere I've gone, In toil and hardship,
0: through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, the basic necessities of life, in cold and exposure... And then he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches that I've planted, but that I've had to flee from for my life, and I haven't really been able to invest in the way that I'd like to, and thus he writes things like letters, like this letter that he's writing to these people that he loves there in that church in the city of Ephesus, in which he's expressing his concern for their concern over his sufferings. Why? Because what he's saying is, look, your concern over my sufferings reveals that we don't see suffering the same way, so here's how I'm going to cure your concern for me. I'm going to show you how I see it. So I just want to stop for a second and ask you how you see it. Your suffering in your life, how do you look at it? How do you see it? Because apparently that's the difference between I'm freaking out, which is, I guess, what these people were doing on his behalf. And you know what? Hey, I'm okay. Which is where Paul was at, even though he was the guy that was doing the suffering. And the first thing, That Paul wants us to see about our sufferings that might change the way that we look at it is our sufferings come from Jesus. Notice how he starts. He's writing, guys, from a Roman prison, and he says this. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of who? Because it's not Rome a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And you're like, well, wait a minute. So is Paul saying that Christ Jesus is the one who put him in prison? Like Christ Jesus is the one who's afflicting him? Christ Jesus is the one who's, who's put him, you know, like where he can't travel and he can't go anywhere and he's having to deal with whatever the conditions
1: are that he's having to deal with? Answer, yes. Ultimately, yes. Just let that sink in for a second. I mean, that's unsettling until you begin to think about it. Because
0: when you begin to think about it, you think, well, wait a minute. Okay, so if, if Christ Jesus is in charge of every molecule in the universe, He is the creator, He is the sustain, sustainer thereof. Like, there is nothing outside of His control. And if I am suffering, then it must, on some level, be an expression of His will for me to suffer in this season of my life. Like, this is what He has ordained from me, or for me, but let's take it a step further. Since Christ Jesus is altogether good, since his intentions toward me are altogether kind, since his purposes for me are
1: altogether wonderful, then even if I can't see it, what I'm going through must, in some way, shape, or form, and even place, it must be good. There must be good in this.
0: And Paul knows that. He looks for it. He looks for it. And so he sees one of the ways. He identifies it immediately. He's like, listen, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, but, but for whose sake? On behalf of whom? Like, what's the good? On behalf of you Gentiles, he's saying, listen, my suffering is good in part because through my suffering, people like you have come to have eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, assuming that you have in fact heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, at least not as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, you people that I have suffered to bring the gospel to, and who by God's grace have responded to the gospel, are now through the blood of Jesus fellow heirs with the Jewish Christians. That was a big question. I mean, Jesus was Jewish. All of the apostles were Jewish. All of the initial converts to Christianity are Jewish. Is the Jewish Messiah just for the Jews or is he for the world? He's for the world. And Paul is the primary guy who makes that clear. He's like, look, your fellow heirs. You're members of the same body. You're partakers of the same promise. And Christ Jesus, through the gospel, what he's saying is, listen, I'm concerned for your concern about me because what you're concerned about in regard to me is my suffering. And what that reveals to me is that you see suffering differently than me. Look, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus who is altogether good. And so the suffering I'm enduring is altogether good. Which brings me to one of my favorite mantras. I have several. I'll just bore you with one. And it's look for the good. Why is it a mantra? Because I need to repeat it. I need to hear it. I need to remind myself. I need to like drill this down in my own head and heart. Look for the good. Why? Because the Bible tells
1: us that the good is there. And even when you can't see the good, it's there. And you can hang on to that.
0: And Paul is the apostle who teaches us this more clearly, I think, than anyone else. And he says this most profoundly, I think, in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight, which starts with these words, which is, and we know. And I just want to pause for a minute. We'll look at the rest of the verse in a second, okay? But before we get to it, I just want to stop and go, do we really know this? Because here's what I think. I think that we know it for other people when our lives are, you know, at least okay and theirs are a mess. And depending on how we bring this verse to them, they might want to hit us. All right, so just keep that in mind. Be sensitive to how you drop this truth. When,
1: how, all of that. But when it blows up for us, do we know it then? He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, and that
0: means, by the way, all things, Work together for what? For good. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to say it, like out loud, all right? So if you grew up in a church where you got to say amen and all that stuff, and you think that we're all, you know, like stuffed shirts or whatever, and like and you've been waiting to speak in church, I don't care if you yell. Like this is your moment. You have full permission. We're going to go for it, and it's going to be Good, okay, we're going to say good, and it's going to be good, and those of you who right now are having an anxiety attack because you've never said a word in church, this is your moment anyway, like you're just going to push through, you got to run at the roar, okay, just just head into the anxiety and overwhelm and overcome it, it's going to be fine, because here's the deal, I think we need to say it. Jesus preaches the gospel to us in word and he gives it to us in communion like there are even physical aspects of this in which we enter into it and receive it and take it into our bodies. It's like he's going every possible way through your senses. I want to get this truth from out here to in here to down here.
1: And I want you to know that all things work together for good. I think maybe saying it or even shouting it out if you've had your coffee
0: would be awesome for us. So I'm going to read it when we get to the word good. That's your cue. Okay, here we go. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That was actually very good. That was bad exceeded expectations. Give yourself a hand. That was good. All right. They work together for
1: good. For those who are called according to the purpose, to his purpose. In that case, it's all good, right?
0: Doesn't always feel all good, but it is. So I was talking to a counselor friend this past Monday, and I said to her, I said, you know, it's been a good, bad year. And most of you are sort of acquainted with our year, and so I'm not going to, like, bore you with all of the details. I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights for you so that those of you who are not acquainted with our year can kind of go, oh, all right, so I, I get the flavor anyway. So 13 months ago, uh, Beth's sister, who's 10 years older, had a major stroke. We thought we were going to lose her. We did not lose her, which we are super thankful for. But it just began this fight, particularly on Beth's behalf, for the sake of her sister, for her life, for her rehab, with the government, with different facilities, where she needs to go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? That continues. And at the same time, her dad was dying, and I talked about this five or six uh, weeks ago, I think. Um, dying slowly of this disease that, that he had. And the stress there was not, you know, how are we going to take care of him? We didn't have to take care of him. He could take care of himself, which I'm thankful for. The stress there was for his soul because it was like this guy's not a Christian and he made it very clear he was not ever interested in becoming a Christian and so we're going, man, when we lose him, like, we're losing him. Fast forward to December 23, so about seven weeks ago, literally an hour and a half before he comes to faith, I mean, literally an hour and a half before he dies, he comes to faith and Beth has the privilege of leading him there, which was awesome and amazing, but it still adds to kind of the, the burden of the year, okay? So he dies on December 23. December 24, for preacher guys, is kind of a big deal, because, you know, that's Christmas Eve and all. So that's, that's big. And then Christmas, big deal for everybody. 26, we head to North Carolina because we're thinking, we're just going to hide. You know, we're just going to hide, and that's it. For one week, we're going to hide, and her mom has a heart attack while we're gone. Her parents were divorced for over 50 years, and Beth has been managing her mom's care who's had dementia for the last five or six years, like literally down to every minute detail. So we're like, okay, great. So she goes from Holy Cross to a rehab where she was roommates with my wife's sister, her daughter, um and then back to holy cross a couple of weeks ago and uh, and they tried everything they could to to keep her going and they came to us and said hey listen uh you know she's she's not going to make it you need to move her into palliative care which is hospice and so we did that and so 12 days in the hospital 8 days of hospice and she passed away this past monday morning and went home to be with the lord and we are confident of that and grateful for that but it's tiring man so I'm meeting with this counselor, and I'm like, you know, it's been a good, bad year. And she's like, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, you know, we're different. We're different people markedly now than we were 13 months ago. We are different in our prayer life than we were 13 months ago. We are different in our understanding of the way that the Lord speaks than we were 13 months ago. We're different in our understanding of the fragility of life and and for that matter of the urgency of the gospel, than we were 13 months ago. You know, when somebody dies, you go through their stuff, you go through their pictures, and you look at 30 years worth of pictures. I'm like, I'm looking at us from you know 28, 30 years ago, and I'm thinking, we look like we're 10. You know, like we're aging in dog years. This is unbelievable. What's happening here? You look at your kids. We've been snapping pictures of our kids all week, like when they were two. You know, and texting them to them, "Don't you look cute?" You know, and,
1: and but you realize that, like, you go, "Where is it all gone?" Different in our urgency for the gospel. Look, God uses suffering to change people. God uses suffering to wake people up. We sang, Wake us up from our sleep.
0: God uses suffering to mold us and to make us more like Jesus, to break us of the things of this world, to retrain us in terms of what actually matters and what we ought to be doing with our time and with our lives. Suffering in the hands of a good God is a good thing. And I don't want to replay the last 13 months. And if it's going to get worse, you know, I don't even want to know. <laughs> don't tell me. I'll just, you know, we'll take it one day at a time, which is kind of where we're at. We've
1: learned we can't control things. I really would like to do that though. It doesn't work. It's been a good, bad year. And Paul hears of the concerns that these people have for him about his suffering, and
0: he's like, You don't get it, do you? You just you don't see it this way. Like, let me let me retrain your vision. Let I me mean, let you see it with a different set of eyes, not these, the eyes of your heart. So here's the thing: I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And because I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Okay, even my suffering is good. Oh, by the way, here's one way that my suffering has been good. The gospel is going out to the world because I'm the one taking
1: it to the world, to the Gentiles. Just one way. Another mantra of mine is you find what you're looking for. What are you looking for? What are you looking for in your suffering? So the first thing Paul wants us to see about our sufferings is that our sufferings
0: come from Jesus. The second thing is that our sufferings bring glory to Jesus, and not just here on earth, but also in heaven. And that's the part of this that we really need to drill down on. Like, that's the difference maker in my mind. Like, that changes a lot of things. He continues in verse 7. He says, "'Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me,' he says, "'though I am the very least
1: of all the saints.'" What humbled him? Suffering, this grace was given. Okay, well, what grace was given to you, Paul?
0: Well, here it is, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things to do what? So that through the church, through you, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of earth. It's not what it says. It is what happens. It happens now. It happened in his life. Again, read through the book of Acts, and look at all the kings that he testifies to, you know, all of the rulers and authorities that he has the privilege of sharing the gospel with through his imprisonments. But it's not what he says. He says, look, created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The Bible makes it clear in several locations that our lives play out before two audiences, the audience of earth and the audience of heaven, and they play out in light of God's purposes in two places, his purposes on earth, his purposes in heaven. The point being that whether it's here or there, Our suffering always has purpose, but it's kind of helpful to know that it might have purpose somewhere else, or in fact it does, when we're looking for it here and we can't find it. A lot of us, I think, suffer alone. We do things that nobody notices. We go through things that we get no credit at all for. We feel invisible in the midst of our suffering. And some of that is because we cut ourselves off from the community that God gives us and we isolate and we shouldn't.
1: But some of it is that You know, you just don't see it. Nobody sees it.
0: God's like, hey, I'm omnipresent, so I never miss a thing. I'm everywhere and all at the same time. And so I I see it, even when you think no one else does. And when I see it coming, I throw you up on the big screen, and there's cheering in heaven. You can't hear it, but it's happening there. They're cheering me for the faith that I've given to you, and that by the power of my spirit, you're manifesting again and again and again and again as you hang on to me, even if it's just by your fingernails in the midst of, of the difficulties of your life. So Paul wants us to see that our sufferings come from Jesus, that they bring glory to Jesus. But lastly... What he wants us to see about our sufferings is that through our sufferings we share in the glory of Jesus. He continues in verse 11. He says, all of this that I've been talking to you about was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have, and I love this, boldness and access, the idea being, to God himself, and then this is great, with confidence. Why is that great? Because confidence is exactly what's shattered in our suffering. That's when we start going, do you exist? If you exist, do you love
1: me? Are you there? Do you know what's going on? You know, do you care? It's you... so when all the doubts come in. He's saying, look, let's just forget all that. Let's drive a stake through that.
0: Bold access with confidence through our faith in him, that is Jesus. And so he concludes... I ask you not to do what? Because this phrase caught my eye. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And for that matter, as Paul teaches us elsewhere, it's for his glory too. God gets the glory when he suffers for them. They are glorified in some sense as the beneficiaries of that suffering. But as Paul suffers, God in his goodness accrues glory. It's a remarkable thought. You know, if you go back to that letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church where he outlined all of those sufferings, you know, five times this and three times that, and I'm never taking a boat again and, you know, all that. In that same letter, he says this about himself. He says, so we do not, here it is, lose heart. So what he's telling those guys not to do, now he's going to talk about himself and those who he's traveling with who are suffering together with him. He says, for we do not lose heart even though our outer self is wasting away.
1: Try to imagine how many scars this guy had on his body. It's overwhelming. Even though our
0: outer self is wasting away, we don't lose heart. Why? Because our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. I'm sorry, but nothing that he describes sounds light or momentary or just even I'd go with affliction. That sounds like a cold or something. But what he's saying is, look, as difficult and severe as it is, when you weigh it off against the glory that will be coming from it for all of eternity, it's not that big of a deal. It's a comparative statement. He says it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look.
1: It's all about what we look, how we see. As we look not to the things that are seen, like our afflictions, like our pain,
0: like our loss, like our suffering, like our loneliness, like the uncertainties of our future. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. They're just like me. They're just like you. We're passing away, and we
1: will. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So how do you see your suffering? Do you
0: see it as coming to you from the hand of Jesus who controls all things, who is altogether
1: good, and therefore somehow within them they're good? Are you looking for the good? Do you see them as an opportunity to
0: bring glory to Jesus and not just here on earth but in heaven? And do you trust that when no glory seems at least to be coming on earth, that God's got you on the big screen, like glory is happening somewhere in your faithful suffering? And do you see it as something that will one day end in an eternal weight of glory that is so great that you'll look back on your sufferings as mind-boggling as this is going to sound and you'll go what you know what I'm thankful
1: for that that was a good bad season look at all that it's brought it's remarkable because i think those are the differences between i'm freaking out and i'm okay
0: i'm okay so as we enter into our time of reflection, I just want to give you some time to just pray through some of this stuff. I'm going to prompt you kind of as we go. And, but, you know, I mean, if the Lord takes you by His Spirit in a different direction and He's kind of going, this is what you need to pray about, pray about that. <laughs> you know, He is the, the preacher, the teacher. Uh, he's the one that we've come to hear from. But otherwise, I'm going to lead you through some things and give you some space, okay? Father, we come to You grateful and confident, that through faith in Jesus we have a bold access into your presence, that you receive us as a father does a child who is beloved.
1: Lord, that you not only hear, but you respond. And we confess, God, in this moment that in our suffering
0: we have often focused more on what we're losing or what we've lost than on any opportunity for gain. We have not looked for the good.
1: Just take a moment and talk to the Lord about what you've been looking for in your suffering.